If you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew 26, verse 30. Our passage for this morning is Matthew 26, 30 to 56. Christianity is a rather peculiar religion. If you stop to think about it, we believe and do some really strange things. Take the symbol of our faith, for instance, the cross. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Have you ever stopped to think how strange that statement is? I know you've all probably read that verse at least a hundred times, probably. But have you ever stopped to think how strange it is for Paul to say, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, Pastor John Piper put it into perspective. He says this, It's like saying, boast only in the electric chair. Only exult in the gas chamber. Only rejoice in the lethal injection. Let your one boast and joy and one exaltation be the lynching rope. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. No manner of execution that has ever been devised was more cruel and agonizing than to be nailed to a cross and hung up to die like a piece of meat. It was horrible. You would not have been able to watch it, not without screaming and pulling out your hair and tearing your clothes. You probably would have vomited. Let this, Paul says, be the passion of your life. That puts it into perspective a little bit, doesn't it? We forget this point. We wear gold necklaces with the cross on it. We often hang it on the wall of our homes. Some will even tattoo it on their bodies. We're so removed from the historical meaning of the cross. Its meaning has been so transformed over the years, even sanitized, that we forget what it originally stood for. Historically, the cross is the equivalent of the electric chair or the hangman's rope. It's the sort of image that should make your stomach turn and your spine shiver when you see it. It's an image that belongs more to the gore of the latest Hollywood slasher flick than it does among the glittering jewelry adorning a lady's neck. And yet that is the symbol of our faith. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says. This is very strange when you stop to think about it. Once you stop taking the cross for granted, it becomes apparent this is a very odd thing to boast in. In the opening words of his letter to the Corinthians, Paul addresses the pride that has run rampant in the Corinthian church by stating this. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul says that God, in His wisdom, 
actually wanted to make it so that the world could not come to know Him through its wisdom. He wanted to make it so that a person could not come to know Him simply by their own intelligence, simply by their own ability. And so He went out of His way to devise a message of salvation that the world would regard as foolishness, as utter nonsense. Paul explains the reason for this just a few verses later when he says that God desired to choose the low and despised in the world in order to bring to nothing the things that are. He says that God has devised the sort of message that that so strips a person of any reason to boast in the flesh, quote, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Point being, God means to humble everyone who comes to Christ so that their faith would not rest in themselves but on God alone. And so God devised a message of salvation that would be rejected as completely foolish according to the merely human estimation of things, according to the things that we naturally value and esteem. And that message is the cross. Paul says that with regard to the cross, that Gentiles consider it foolishness. Greeks search for wisdom, he says, but we preach Christ crucified, which is folly to Gentiles. This shouldn't be too hard for you and I to understand. After all, we're Gentiles. And even more than that, culturally, we're Greeks. All of Western society is essentially Greco-Roman in its heritage. You see it in our architecture, in our systems of government. It's evident in our literature, in our systems of education. And that's what Paul's referencing when he speaks of Greeks. He's not talking about ethnic Greeks. The Greek Empire had left such an indelible mark on the culture of the Roman world in terms of language and art and philosophy that anyone who adhered to the system of culture was considered Greek, regardless of race. Uh, We see this, for instance, in Acts 6, when the Greek-speaking Jews are called Hellenists in contrast to the Hebrews. Ethnically, they may be descendants of Abraham, but culturally, they were Hellenists. They were Greek. And this is what we are as well. Everyone in this room is what Paul would call a Greek. And so it's not hard for us to understand what Paul means when he says that Greeks search for wisdom, and instead he proclaims the cross, which is folly to Gentiles. To the Greco-Roman mind, wisdom is found in what is seen. It's essentially materialistic in nature, meaning that what is real is what you can behold with your eyes and touch with your hands. And in its materialism, it's incredibly pragmatic. Wisdom is found in, in what works. It's a humanistic system of thought that places man at the center, that says that we're capable of achieving anything, and then judges the worth of an idea by whether or not it enables us to achieve our goals. The message of the cross, on the other hand, is a message that is largely built on what is unseen. Whereas the Greeks search for righteousness in intricate philosophical systems and clever uh, arguments, the Christians proclaimed a righteousness that is completely foreign to oneself and which is transferred spiritually simply by faith in its object. That's not a righteousness that a Greek could boast in. After all, you can't explain it. You can't discipline yourself to it. There's nothing you can do in your own power to achieve it. To the Greek, therefore, it was nothing more than vain superstition. And in the nearly 2,000 years since Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, not much has changed. The world around us continues to seek refuge in human know-how, Many people believe that society will be transformed and justice will triumph through the power of our political reformations. Death, disease, and hunger will be overcome by the power of science. 
world peace will be achieved through our enlightened diplomacy. It's human wisdom that will save us. And an idea is still judged by the degree to which it works. The degree to which I can lay my hands on it and explain it with my reason. Of course, this is not that we as Christians are necessarily anti-reason or anti-intellectual. It's just that this is not where our hope lies. We go to the doctor when we're sick. And yet we understand that our health is still ultimately in the hands of God. We believe in a strong national defense, and yet we'll acknowledge that unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. We understand that money is an essential part of survival, and yet we acknowledge that God feeds the birds of the air without sowing or reaping, and He clothes the lilies of the field without toiling or spinning. Many, if not most of us, trust in the fact that when Genesis says that God made the earth in six literal days, that that's exactly what happened. Regardless of whatever the latest scientific theory is, we believe in the existence of miracles and of the historical occurrence of an actual global flood. We accept the concept of incarnation, that in Christ Jesus, God became a man. We hope in a future resurrection from the dead. All of these things are critical elements to the gospel story, and all of these things are still regarded as foolishness to the world. And so it's not hard for us to understand what Paul means when he says that Greeks search for wisdom. And we preach Christ crucified to Gentiles' foolishness. We live in a land where the church of the flying spaghetti monster was created specifically to mock our belief in an unseen God. One of the major complaints against Christianity today, probably the major complaint still, is that it is anti-intellectual. It's more or less assumed by many, if not most, that it's largely for the stupid and uneducated. The more educated a person is, the more likely they are to regard it as mere superstition, which is preached in order to mollify the weak when they face questions they are too ignorant to understand. This is how Christianity started. In fact, Paul himself was practically laughed off Mars Hill once he got to the portion of the sermon that had to do with the resurrection from the dead. He also points out that not many of the Corinthians were wise according to worldly standards. Again, this is how Christianity started. And it's what we continue to experience today. This is easy for us to understand, that the cross is regarded as foolishness. It's simply the nature of the culture we live in as Greeks. Harder for us to understand is what Paul means when he says, Jews demand signs, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. You see, when it came to faith in the unseen, The Jews were the exact opposite of the Greeks. Starting from the Exodus on, God had interactions with Israel. And through those interactions, the blessings and the curses that He promised through Moses, etc., through those interactions, He had pounded into their head the element of the unseen world. They were delivered from Egypt by the hand of God with unparalleled displays of signs and wonders. And every year, the people remembered this deliverance during their celebration of the Passover. After God brought them out of Egypt, He then went through great pains to teach them to depend on Him rather than their own strength as He guided them into the Promised Land. He allowed the first generation to die in the wilderness when they refused to enter the land in their unbelief. He caused the mighty walls of Jericho to fall for the next generation. And then He frustrated their attempts to capture tiny Ai when one of their number disobeyed. During the time of the judges, he periodically placed his people under, captiv- under captivity when they refused to obey his commands, and then he raised up judges to miraculously deliver them once they repented. He guided the stones that slew Goliath when David believed. 
And then he removed his presence and allowed Jerusalem to fall when David's descendants did not. Their whole history was one that taught them that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This is a point that should not be missed. The Jews were a people who feared God. In fact, the whole reason why the Pharisees turned to the kind of legalism that they practiced, wherein they added on to God's commands in order to build a kind of fence around the law, the whole reason why they did this, at least initially, was because they feared God. They were afraid of repeating the sins of their fathers. So the Jews weren't like the Greeks. They believed in the unseen, the unexplainable. Their value structure was not absent of faith. Instead, faith was at the absolute center of it. And what this meant is that when it came to truth, what they looked for was not wisdom, but power. They worshipped the God of Moses, the God of the Exodus. They worshipped the God who empowered the judges and placed His Spirit upon David and gave Him the wisdom to rule. Theirs was the God of Joshua, who caused the walls of Jericho to fall. The God of Gideon, who said, There are too many people, Gideon, to deliver the Midianites into your hand. The God of Hezekiah, who slayed 185,000 Assyrians in a single night. They worshipped the God of Noah, who destroyed nearly all the flesh on the earth in a devastating worldwide flood. And so for them... What was offensive about the cross was not that it was anti-intellectual, but that it was weak. I think this is probably hard for us to wrap our minds around. Greek thinking has so infested our own minds that one of the chief things we struggle with is faith in the unseen. We don't pray, we don't live as if our eternal destiny defines us more than the present realities. And the reason for this is because we've been saved out of a pragmatic, humanistic, materialistic culture. If any of you struggle with doubt, it's most likely due to some kind of intellectual argument presented against the reasonability of the cross. This isn't how it worked for the Jew. Their process didn't work like that. For them, the problem with the cross, the thing that really made them stumble was that it was such an apparent display of weakness. When they looked back at the Old Testament and what it said about the Messiah, and they saw what they saw, that what they saw was a prediction of David on steroids. He was the penultimate conqueror, a man of, of unmatched sovereign authority. The Christians, though, said that actually the Christ had been crucified. There was just no way for them to wrap their minds around this. In fact, if you've ever wondered how the crowds could go from the fanatical cries of Hosanna to the Son of David on Sunday to the incensed cries of crucify Him, crucify Him on Friday, I think the moment that says it all is found in John 19. When Pilate, in order to demonstrate, listen, in order to demonstrate that he had found no guilt in Jesus, brings out the beaten and bloody Jesus dressed in a purple robe and adorned with a crown of thorns and declares to the crowds, Behold the man. The crowds are whipped up in such a frenzy at this point that as Pilate tries to reason with them, they ignore him and they just keep shouting, Crucify! Crucify! They're in such a fury at that point that Pilate realizes that he's about to have a riot on his hands, and so he turns over Jesus to be crucified. The crowds are enraged because in their eyes, the man that they had so enthusiastically supported just a few days earlier 
have been demonstrated to be an imposter in that moment. A false Messiah. There's no way you can arrest the Messiah. There's no way that the Romans can beat him and hang him and flog him. He's supposed to destroy Rome. So clearly Jesus was an imposter, a fake. And that meant he deserved death. The law said that everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. And yet the Christians are saying that Jesus is the Messiah. The anointed one. The blessed one. It simply seemed impossible to the ancient Jew. As as hard as it is for the modern PhD in biology to believe in a resurrection from the dead, it was just as difficult for the ancient Jew to believe in a crucified Messiah. It was a contradiction in terms. It, It seemed to go against everything that they had ever been taught about the power of God. And so this is why the Jews rejected the cross, because it was a sign of weakness. But is this true? Is the cross a sign of weakness? Paul says, no, not actually. In 1 Corinthians one twenty four, he says, we preach Christ crucified, quote, to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He says it's all a misunderstanding. The cross looks like folly. But it's actually wisdom. It looks like weakness, weakness, but it's actually power. You've probably all experienced the wisdom side of this equation personally. The cross can look like foolishness at first blush. But to anyone who has believed this message and applied it by faith, it quickly becomes apparent that it explains the world around us far, far better than any other system of theology or philosophy known to man. It's not only wise in that it resolves the dilemmas presented by human sin and divine holiness, but it also supplies an explanation of history and relationships and the human psyche as well. It makes sense of life in a way that no other message can. Again, you've probably all experienced the wisdom personally as you've believed, but this is true of the power part of the equation as well. At first blush, the cross makes it look like Jesus is weak. But as you zoom in and consider what's going on in the cross, it's then you realize that it portrays a Messiah who's far, far more powerful than anyone that the Jews first envisioned. The cross is not just a demonstration of divine wisdom, but of ultimate power. And in today's passage, Matthew is going to show us how. Remember, the apparent weakness of the cross was a major issue for Matthew's original readers. These these were Jews who would have stumbled over the concept of a crucified Messiah. And so now as we get into this last part of the gospel that has to do with Jesus' passion, he explains, you misunderstand, yes, Jesus was crucified, but he certainly isn't weak. He already stated, started this argument back at the beginning of Matthew 26 when he demonstrated how Jesus sovereignly orchestrated the circumstances surrounding his death. When we took a look at that passage a, a few weeks ago, we saw how it demonstrated that Jesus was sovereign over history, how he was sovereign over human hearts, and of course how he was ultimately sovereign over his own sacrifice. Well, today Matthew is going to show how the cross is also a demonstration of Jesus' authority. Without any further delay, let's go ahead and read now this passage together. And let's see how Matthew shows us the power of the cross. Matthew 26, 30 to 56. Matthew writes, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. 
Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cup, or if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. Uh, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Once again, in this passage, Matthew uniquely demonstrates the power of the cross. In particular, he explains how the circumstances surrounding Jesus' betrayal and arrest reveal his sovereign authority over the earth. This is the concept I want to explore with you here this morning, how the cross establishes Jesus' sovereign authority over the earth. Or to be more specific, It shows, the cross shows that Jesus possesses the legal authority to inherit the earth. It's his possession. He owns it. There are three sections uh, to this passage of Scripture. In the first section, it's, it's verses 30 to 35. In this section, Jesus predicts the disciples' desertion and Peter's denial. This apparently happens on the way to the Mount of Olives, after Jesus and the disciples concluded their Passover celebration with a closing hymn. So they're walking through the streets of Jerusalem. They're exiting the city and returning to a place that John 18.2 says they went to often. The place, of course, is Gethsemane, which means oil press. Gethsemane was located on the Mount of Olives, where Jesus delivered his famed Olivet Discourse just a couple of days earlier. Who knows? Perhaps it was there that he even delivered that discourse. It certainly seems possible. 
From the name and from the description that we find in the Gospels, we can conclude that it was probably a walled olive garden. On their way to Gethsemane, Jesus predicts the disciples' desertion. Peter, of course, asserts that he will never desert Christ. He will never deny Him. Jesus, however, insists that He will. By the way, this is the second time that Jesus and Peter have had this exchange. The first apparently happened shortly after Jesus predicted that one of His disciples would betray Him. The second section occurs in verses 36 to 46. In this section, Jesus leaves the bulk of His disciples at the entrance to Gethsemane. He then enters with Peter, James, and John, the same three disciples that witness Christ's transfiguration, and he asks them to pray with him while he prays for his suffering. Again, these are the three disciples who first seem to accept Jesus' prediction of his death after witnessing the transfiguration. So it's no coincidence coincidence that Jesus chooses these three to watch and pray with him at this moment in time. They're the three who would be able to best understand what's about to transpire. Of course, they have trouble staying awake. But what's notable is that in Luke... It says in Luke 22.45 that they were, quote, sleeping for sorrow. So it wasn't as if these men were simply apathetic because they were unaware of what was going on. Rather, it would seem that they were very much aware of what was happening. So much so that they're so emotionally drained in this moment that they can't stay awake. They're practically weeping themselves to sleep as they try to stand watch with Jesus. Of course, Jesus himself is also incredibly distressed. He uh, prays repeatedly for God to remove the cup of divine wrath that he's about to drink. This is a man, keep in mind, who would have been able to anticipate better than anyone else who's ever lived before him just what it would mean to face the wrath of God. And he knows that that's what's in store for him. The scriptures have predicted it. He's in such distress over the anticipation of that thought that Luke says that his sweat became like drops of blood as he prayed to God for another option. No other option is given, though, and as Jesus submits to the will of the Father, he rouses the disciples and tells them, Rise, let us be going. The betrayer is at hand. He thus goes back to the entrance of the garden, where the rest of the disciples have been keeping watch, just as Judas would have been arriving with the entourage sent to arrest Jesus. That's the third section, verses 47 to 56, which describes Jesus' betrayal and arrest. Judas has agreed to identify Jesus so the religious leaders don't end up arresting the wrong man in the darkness. Judas does this by, ironically enough, greeting Jesus with a kiss. A disciple draws a sword to defend Jesus. Matthew doesn't tell us his identity. John says it's Peter. And from the looks of it, there's a good chance that the sword in question was nothing more than a small ceremonial sword, little more than the size of a dagger, that would have been used in preparation for the Passover lamb. Peter goes tearing into this fight with this this small ceremonial sword, and it would seem that he tries to crush the head of the high priest slave with a maneuver that would have been common for a Roman soldier to use with their broadswords, raising the sword above his head with two hands and then bringing it down on the top of his opponent. However, this little sword can't really crush anyone's skull, and so instead it glances off the side of the head and cuts off the slave's ear. Jesus asks Peter to put the sword away, And then he basically turns himself in. And as he turns himself in, the disciples immediately scatter, thus fulfilling his prediction of their desertion. I think there are three observations that need to be made in order to understand the message communicated by these three sections. The first observation 
is the contrast to be made between Jesus and his disciples. This is probably the major theme that dominates this section of Scripture. Jesus predicts the disciples' failure in the first of these three sections. In the second section, we see the inability of the disciples to stand watch with Jesus as he fervently prays in the garden. And then in the third section, we see them scatter in terror as Jesus calmly and collectedly turns himself in. So you have the prediction of the desertion in the first section, followed up with its fulfillment in the third, and sandwiched between these two sections is this account where Jesus, in in great distress, yields to the will of His Father, all while His disciples are unable to stay awake with Him, even in this hour of tremendous turmoil. Again, there's a clear contrast that's being made. They fall asleep, Jesus prays. They desert, Jesus stands firm. This is, I think, key to understanding this passage. The second observation to make is how obviously this passage draws out the humanity of Jesus. In fact, perhaps no section of the Scripture demonstrates the humanity of Jesus more than the temptation that occurs here in Gethsemane. What we see here is not a Jesus who's impervious to pain, and who has the power in himself to do whatever he wishes. Instead, what we see is a man on his knees, calling out to God for deliverance, as he prepares for his death in incredible anguish. Again, this is a weak Jesus. A faithful Jesus, no doubt. A man zealous for the glory of God and firm in his conviction to be obedient to the very end. But a man, nonetheless, with all the weaknesses and frailness that comes with humanity. I believe it's common for many Christians to believe that the reason why Jesus obeyed perfectly is because He was God. And that's true. That is true. That is the reason He obeyed. Because He was God. However, I believe many think that it was His, for lack of a better term, it was His divine essence that came into play in His obedience. What I mean by that is they think that the attributes of His being, His omniscience, for instance, or His omnipotence, is what enabled Him to obey. So like whenever he was tempted to the, to the degree that most men failed, it was then that Jesus just sort of flipped on the God mode and overcame the temptation by his divine strength. But this isn't how it worked. It wasn't like Jesus was playing on cheat mode. No, he obeyed as a man. Meaning that while he did possess all of his divine attributes while a man, at the same time he did not in any way access any attributes that are more than human in His obedience as a man. The reason for this is because in order to serve as a substitute for sin in our place, Jesus had to live in every way, to live and succeed as a man. It is by a man that sin entered into the world, and death through sin. And so for Jesus to serve as a substitute for sin, He has to do so as a man. The obedience that made him a perfect sacrifice as sin in our place, therefore, had to come entirely as an expression of Jesus' humanity. He had to obey while using the same resources that are available to us in our obedience, or else it wouldn't count. He would have obeyed as God, and not as a man. The role his deity plays is that that in what I would call his divine personality. Jesus possessed no attraction to sin. He could be tempted. 
He could be aware, for instance, in Gethsemane of the extreme pain that he was about to suffer. And because as a man he could indeed experience that pain, it was possible for him to dread it. And yet as much as he dreaded the pain, it was not enough for there to be even an inkling of disobedience in his mind. Even as he prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me with sweat like blood dripping off of him. Even still, he can pray, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The divine nature was very much a part of Jesus' person. And yet he did not rely on that nature in order to obey. It was this divine personality which spans both the divine and human natures of Jesus which brought about that obedience. What's interesting is that when you look at what apparently caused the disciples to fail in this passage, it was those same reasons, those same resources that could actually be credited for Jesus' obedience. For example, it's apparent from Peter's response to Jesus' prediction of his denial that Peter was proud. He didn't depend upon God's mercy for his obedience. He trusted in himself. He says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Very much he thinks he can stand. Jesus, by contrast, is very much dependent upon his Father. Though he is God himself, there he is still praying to God in the garden seeking His will, yielding to it. He is humble in a way that Peter clearly was not. The disciples likewise were not vigilant. Again, they were physically exhausted in their grief, and yet Jesus still chastises Peter, asking, so could you not keep watch with me one hour? And then He commands Peter, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Obviously, there's an, expression, there's an expectation for the disciples to be watchful, an expectation they cannot or will not do. Yes, though uh, he does not uh, sleep, Jesus continues to pray, and he, he depends on his, pa- his Father for strength. And by the way, God supplies it. God supplies that strength that Jesus prays for. Luke says that an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him in this hour. The disciples were also ignorant of God's Word. Jesus has to explain to them that their desertion was necessary because the Scriptures predicted it. Of course, they tried to deny the Scriptures' teaching, but Jesus insisted. In contrast, when the crowds come to arrest Jesus, He wonders of their actions in spite of His innocence, saying, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture Me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize Me? And then he explains, he says, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. While the disciples resist God's plan, Jesus is ready because he understands that his suffering has been decreed by scripture. Point being, there isn't a supernatural element to Jesus' obedience here. He's obeying as a man. He's obeying because he's not a sinner like the rest of mankind. He's not like us in that respect. So Jesus' humanity, that's one observation to make in this passage. The third thing that needs to be observed is the control that Jesus demonstrates in these events. Particularly in this last section where he's betrayed. Jesus is in full control. In this last section, Jesus makes three statements to three different people, and they all demonstrate that when Jesus goes to the cross, he goes willingly. To Judas, Jesus says, Friend, do what you came for. 
He doesn't say, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss, as in Luke? The focus isn't on the irony of the betrayal. It's on Jesus' control of the situation. He practically orders Judas, saying, do what you came for. When Peter draws the sword, Jesus tells him to put it away and says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? Only Matthew records that statement, by the way. The point, once again, is that Jesus could stop these men if He wanted to. But He doesn't want to. Third, He remarks to the crowds, Why do you have these clubs and swords? Didn't didn't I say what I said out in the open? He's telling them, I never tried to hide what I was doing. You don't need to take me by force. Again, he says, but all this has taken place that the scriptures and the prophets might be fulfilled. In other words, everything is going as planned. Jesus doesn't resist arrest. He goes willingly. This is important. The point that Matthew is making is that Jesus' life wasn't taken. He laid it down of his own volition. Not only is that important in terms of proving that Jesus was not killed because he was weak, but it's important because of what these three observations combine to reveal. What they demonstrate is that Jesus is a a superior Adam. Yes, he's a man, but he's a different kind of man. All the other men before him have failed. Even in this passage, the very best of men that Jesus could find, the disciples, they all fail. Not Jesus. Adam failed when faced with temptation in the Garden of Eden. He failed amidst the luxuries and blessings of Eden. But when Jesus was faced with temptation in a very different kind of garden, and amidst all the sufferings and trials that he had endured and was about to endure, he persevered. He endured. He obeyed even to the point of death. And what this means is that Jesus possesses the right to inherit the earth. You go back to Genesis 1, and the original design of man was to rule over the earth on God's behalf as his image. Adam failed in that responsibility, and the result was that through his failure, sin and death entered into the world. However, God promised a Redeemer in Genesis 3.15, a seed from Adam who would crush the head of the serpent. Now, Matthew does not highlight in this passage what he does not highlight is that this is exactly what Jesus is doing as He passes this final temptation. He's crushing the head of the serpent. After all, both Luke and John state that Judas' betrayal was satanically driven. Luke points out as well that it was Satan who demanded to sift Peter like wheat. The trials that Jesus faces here are satanically designed. But Jesus passes the test. We saw this back with his wilderness temptation in Matthew 4. Satan cannot draw any wickedness out of Jesus because there isn't any there. Jesus, therefore, is the one who possesses the authority to crush the head of the serpent. He is the promised Redeemer. So once again, where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. And this means that Jesus, therefore, possesses the right to inherit the earth. Paul states it this way in Philippians 2, 5-11. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is important. Paul says, therefore, therefore, 
God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That therefore that statement is key. He humbled Himself to the point of death on a cross. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name above every name. His obedience is the cause of His exaltation. You see, his, you see how his obedience displays that he is worthy of praise. He is worthy of authority. That's what his obedience does. The planet given to him, he will use for the glory of God. He's demonstrated as much in his obedience, so he is worthy of authority. Paul explains how Jesus will use this authority in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-28, as he contrasts Jesus with Adam. He writes, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He has accepted who put all things in subjected under him, subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him, who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Do you see the order there? Paul says that God has put all things in subjection under Jesus. Paul then clarifies, he says, of course... God the Father is not put in subjection to Jesus, though since uh, Jesus, uh, He gave Jesus that authority. So God the Father is not put in subjection. He gave Jesus that authority. And then He concludes, He says, and then once Jesus has submitted all things, He Himself will be subjected as well so that God may be all in all. That's how Jesus uses the earthly authority given to Him by God. The fact that Jesus would use His authority in this way was demonstrated first in the wilderness temptation of Matthew 4, And then finally in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he sealed his obedience with his blood. And so this original design, wherein man rules over the earth on God's behalf, orders it according to his will, this design is fulfilled in Jesus. So you see, the Jews who stumbled over the cross, believing that it was a sign of weakness, they had it completely backwards. The cross isn't a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength, of power. No one took Jesus' life. Matthew shows us that. He he laid it down. The Scriptures had to be fulfilled. There had to be an atonement for sin. The, The wonderful Passover meal that we studied over the past couple of weeks, it had to be fulfilled through the cutting of a new covenant with the blood of Christ. Yes, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. The law does say that. But as Paul explains in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's why He went to the cross. Not because He couldn't stop the crowd sent out to arrest Him, but because when He prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. The answer He received was, No, it is not possible. This is the only way. So Jesus yielded to the will of His Father and declared, Your will be done. This is what the Jews who looked for power overlooked when they saw the cross. The cross is not a symbol of disobedience and weakness. For Jesus, rather, it was a symbol of obedience and therefore strength. 
It was the Father's will that Jesus suffer and die. He went in submission to His Father. He faced a temptation stronger than any man before Him had ever faced. And He prevailed. He succeeded. And now because of that success, He will inherit all things. In fact, note that even in heaven, the wounds become the reason for praise and exaltation. The angels shout, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing in Revelation 5.12. It's the wounds that make Jesus worthy to open the seven-sealed scroll that entitles Him to the possession of the earth. The four living creatures and the twenty-four elders sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? They say, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to God, and they shall reign on the earth. Undoubtedly, the cross is not a sign of weakness, but of power. And so, yes, there is a sense in which the cross should send a shiver down your spine. But not in fear of its method of execution, nor in scorn over the man hung on that tree. Instead, it should send a chill down your spine because the man hung upon that cross went there in full submission to his Father. The cross is a symbol of his holy zeal. It's a symbol of his righteous perfection. And it's because of that righteous perfection that He has received all authority from His Father. Do you understand? The cross isn't a symbol of defeat. It's a symbol of victory. The head of the serpent has been crushed. The perfect man has triumphed. His time of suffering and sacrifice, the time of His trial and testing, is over. He is now raised from the dead. Because death couldn't hold Him. Because again, He wasn't worthy of death. So He is now raised from the dead. He couldn't be killed. He is raised from the dead. And He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now He only waits for the Word. And when He receives that Word, and the Father says, Go, the time is now. He will then come again to submit the earth again to God. And He'll do it with the same resolute and zealous devotion to God that drove him to the cross. Think about that. The same devotion that caused Jesus to stare the full, the full wrath of God square in the face and declare, your will be done in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's with that same devotion that He will return to the earth to judge the wicked. That should send a chill down your spine because it means that when judgment day comes, there will be no quarter. There will be no refuge, save for one place. And of course, that's in the arms of Jesus. Once again, the cross is a sign of supreme zeal and ultimate strength. It declares God's judgment against sin, the judgment that is due to every man and woman who's ever lived whose sin is not covered. And it declares as well the love of Jesus for His Father and His worthiness to receive all things to judge the earth. In this way, the cross is a symbol of condemnation. And yet, and yet, it is a symbol of divine mercy and love as well. As Jesus told His disciples as He prepared to go to Jerusalem, He said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. As He told the disciples as He gave them the cup of the very first Lord's table, This is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Yes, Jesus declared in the garden, Your will be done. And because of that, He's worthy to inherit all things. And He will judge the earth. 
But the reason why the father essentially told him, no, it's not possible for this cup to pass from you, is because he wanted Jesus to die as a ransom for sin. He wanted to save sinners. And this is exactly what Jesus accomplished at the cross. God is a just God, a holy God, a righteous God, and as such He must punish sin. But the glory of the gospel is that in the cross, God punished that sin in Jesus. As Paul states in 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So on the cross, Jesus died in place of sinners. And now all that one must do to have that sacrifice applied to them is believe in Christ, trust in Him for the forgiveness of sins, and they will receive eternal life. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. All that's needed is faith. And you'll receive eternal life freely. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the message of the cross is the same that it has been since the days of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yes, the cross is a sign of judgment. It's a warning. But it's a sign of hope as well. To everyone who turns to Christ in faith, asking for the forgiveness of sins, what this cross symbolizes is that their sin has been forgiven. And the judgment that is due to them has fallen on Christ instead. So repent, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. If you've not yet trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, I'd invite you to do that this morning. We've just finished up studying the Olivet Discourse during which Jesus explains the events that will culminate in His return to judge the earth. And one of the things that we learn in that study is that that sequence of events can begin at any time. And the Lord can return to take His people to Himself at any point within that time frame. Point being, you don't know how much time you have left. Not only is it possible for you to die tomorrow, or even today for that matter, but it's possible for Jesus to break the seals and commence the day of the Lord judgment as well now. At any moment, God can give the okay, and Jesus can begin the sequence of events that will culminate in His exaltation and glory. He's already paid the price. The only thing that restrains God's hand is His mercy, is His compassion towards sinners. Don't take that mercy for granted. Heed what Matthew is writing here. The cross is not just a symbol of grace or of wisdom, but of power as well. So repent and escape the wrath of God by fleeing into the arms of Jesus. Accept His grace. Accept His mercy while there is still time. Let's pray.